I'm Martin Manetic. Can everybody hear me okay? It's the first time I've got off a park bench where I felt very comfortable to speak to uh, a crowd like this. When you're back there, you can't hear or see, so it's pretty much like being in active addiction. Um, what I'd like to be able to share with you, really, I've, I'm in a bit of panic. I haven't prepared anything. Uh, I've only got my story. And just before we came on, I was told that we're only speaking for about 20 minutes. So, um, although there was nothing really prepared, I don't know why I'm really panicking. It should, should be better for me, but uh, somehow it doesn't feel like it is. Um, I think what I was hoping was, is this, are you getting the echo or is it just me getting an echo? That's me, okay. Well, I can live with that. I've been getting it years. Yeah, I think the, the, the problem for me is that when my fear is really activated, which um, drives my addiction, the, all my outriders are trying to regain some control and, and uh, to feel safe. And I was hoping to speak a little bit slowly and not rush so that my higher power can really cut in. Um, so now I'm going to have to accelerate that a little bit. The only thing I'm going to try and control is my bad language and my bladder and my bowels. That's it. I was going to pretend this was like my, you know, it's really just like a local meeting except with 6,000 people in it. You know, it takes, it's a big room this. Just, I don't think I've been in such a big room. Anyway, I've got 20 minutes to tell my story and I kind of, it's obviously impossible. So, I feel that the debt that I have for the rest of my life is to Narcotics Anonymous. The duty that maybe I have and the responsibility that goes with it is to maybe help one person discover what's possible in this fellowship or to help somebody touch another soul and I'd like to first of all just as I'm calming down thank a couple of people I've met here Marissa uh, Gloria from Baltimore this is from the Bronx and the people in the marathon meeting at four, four o'clock this morning um, which really reminded me about what NA is about um, and there's a woman there that I really wanted to go and hug who shared her pain and I didn't get that opportunity so if you were in there I'd really like to give you a hug later and, uh, but that's what really connected me because I suffer from a disease which disconnected me my addiction is all about disconnection and in the brief period I've got to let you know about my story um, there's one thing I'd like you to try and do which is to try and let go of all your expectations I'm trying to let go of my expectations of what your expectations are of me and I tell you why I mention that because whenever I've had expectations which I've had most of my life they were pretty well based around 
a world view based around Disney or something. I, you know, I wasn't very realistic, but I have, I've always had expectations. But what I've, my experience has been is disappointment follows very quickly. Um, when I went to my first NA meeting, it was the first time, I think, in my life that I had no expectations. I was completely broken as a human being. I really stood on this sort of edge of my life looking into the abyss. I wasn't dead, uh, but I certainly wasn't alive. And in that, because I, I knew, I didn't know what to expect, because I was so lost, I became very open. And because I became very open, I was able to feel the love that was in that room. My expectations robbed me from feeling very often anything. But I wanted to share with you really my early recovery. The end of my using, which was no fixed abode, um, completely alone. I was told by the medical profession that I was a hopeless case and I'm afraid there was nothing more they could do for me. What they did say before my last admission into another institution and there were very few treatment centres and uh, what they did say was there was a guy called Johnny who's passed away since clean who set up an organisation called NA obviously he hadn't but that's the information that was given to me and that's how uh, NA was born in London with a few people and I always remembered and he gave me this guy's phone number and um, at the end of my using when I was discharged from this locked mental ward again um, I had made the decision really to die My last great enabler, my mother, um, died through the pain, really, of not wanting to bury her son. Um, and I had these two carrier bags that I used to walk around in. In, in the London Fellowship, there's all Martin and his two carrier bags. There was nothing in them, really. There was it, the grandiosity, even at that stage. I had one carrier bag with the letters from my ex-wife telling me she's left me, and she was in a treatment centre. And I think the other bag was just junk. I, I, but I really was sort of orphaned into NA and, and I didn't come expecting anything. My life was finished and it was just a question of when it was going to finish. I think when I got to that meeting, if it would have been a day earlier, it may have been too soon. And if it was a day later, it may have been too late. I was... The timing, I just can't tell you, was just so perfect. And in that meeting, there was only about six people. We had about 15 meetings a week in London when I came in. Uh, there's eight million people live in London. So you can work out how many addicts there. Plenty. And halfway through that meeting, in fact before that, there was a guy who came up to me and he said, welcome, would you like a cup of tea? And 
it had been so long since anybody had ever said welcome or invited me in or felt you know I, I almost instantly felt at home and I was obviously looking for the scam or the clue or what, what this whole thing was about and then halfway through the meeting I um, saw a girl that I'd used with she was six months clean she thought I died and after that meeting I cried the whole night through I realized in a moment that everything I was ever going to need to know was there I can't tell you how that happened I don't know the detail but I knew that everything I was looking for all my life was there in a place of no expectation in a community center where I wouldn't have been seen dead in normally and here was the secret of life disguised in this kind of uh, run down little building half a dozen addicts um, and I was very grandiose I've searched all over the world for the secret of life I've been married before a couple of times I look for the secret of life in women in drugs in anything and it was in this strange, grubby little building uh, with these six addicts. And the fire was just lit within me. I was kind of really such a, at such a rock bottom. I just wanted to share that this early period of recovery. I mean, I've been around now 20 years. In June 1st was my birthday. But when I, and it's incredible that I'm standing on a stage at 20 years because what I want to share with you is that uh, I stood on a stage 20 years ago in London before the World Convention in London and, and, and it feels very symbolic that um, it's just kind of neat and tidy which is how I'd like it. I wish my life was like that. So they said to me go to meeting every day and um, I was living in this kind of I was homeless and I was in this sort of hostel where they weren't very nice people and it was really filthy and dirty and, and um, I just want to share these couple of things that happened in two days. Uh, after about a week or, or so of going to meetings I was going backwards to this um, little place and I had no money. And this place used to say, it was what we call in England a bed and breakfast. You got your bed and two slices of toast and that's it. That was breakfast. Um, and because I defrauded the social security before I got clean, they wouldn't make any payments and they said they were going to throw me out. And um, I met a woman that morning. She stood out really because she was older, she was quite well dressed and there was something about her and she came and sat with me at breakfast and oh, a slice of toast and she said you're a Pisces and you're going through a spiritual experience and I thought yeah, you know, another crazy woman went off, went and did my uh, went to try and get my money and uh, they refused to give it to me and I crept back in so that they wouldn't throw me out and I sat on my bed in this 
grubby little room, but I knew an NA meeting was all I needed. I had it on the walls. I stuck up stuff uh, saying a meeting every day. An NA meeting's all you need the rest of your life. An NA meeting's all you need. And I felt this kind of energy, and I, I, I looked up, and under the door was this kind of was a note. And on this note, I got up and I looked at it, and it said, "If you need to speak, knock on my room." And you know, I didn't have a better plan, which was fantastic, because I normally have. But my plans had run out. The end of my using really was when I ran out of plans. The scriptwriters that sat in my head for 17 years telling me that everything was this was the next move this is the one that's going to sort it all out and, and vacated the space there was there was nothing left to write and I knocked on her door I assumed it was the woman from the morning she opened the door and there was all these kind of icons in this these religious figures and she stood there and she said, God sent me to help you. And I'm quite cynical. And she said, come in and talk. And, and I went in and I had a chat and I said, look, I found these people and I, I need to go to meetings and I just need my rent for, paid and I, I need my fair money and, you know, uh, that's... And she said, well, I'm going to pay two weeks rent and give you some money to get to your meetings. And I never saw her again. I stayed there for a few days and I looked for her, but she was gone. Now, I don't know how this stuff happens or what happened. I can't explain it. That's been my experience. The next day, or a few days later, I just want to share these two, what I would have to regard as miracles. I mean, the first miracle was I wasn't using. That was the real miracle. And she gave me some money, which obviously I wasn't very good with money, um, to last me for two weeks, which lasted me for two days. Because I had good breakfast, and I kind of... Uh, and, and that financial irresponsibilities followed me through my recovery and caused me countless pain. Only recently have I started to address my relationship to money and being irresponsible and the pain that it's caused me. But I'm somebody that kind of needs a lot of pain, and I don't know why. Because if it doesn't get painful, I don't change anything. And I'm a great believer that when it's painful enough, I stop doing the things that create that pain. But the threshold's enormous, I've got to tell you. Anyway, I'd run out of money, and uh, there was only one meeting on a Sunday in London. I was desperate to get to it. It was three o'clock in the afternoon, and... Um, I was up early in the morning and was hungry again. It's hard to believe, looking at me now, that I was so hungry. I've never eaten for 20 years, but I'm sure a few people can identify with that. I was hungry, I needed cigarettes, and my pride, this thing, that, that this phenomenon called my pride, that stopped me asking for help for so many years, I was walking towards a phone box and I thought I'd phone the one person who had sent me in some cigarettes when I was in detox and in prison. Uh, but I didn't want to wake him up on a Sunday morning and ask for money. 
But then my head was saying, go on, go on, you know, you need some help, you need some help, you can't hang around for six hours. And I walked into this phone box. I was outside a tube station in, in London. And I picked up the receiver and my head was battling, shall I phone, shall I phone, shall I phone, shall I phone. And I picked up the receiver and money started to pour out the phone box. But not a little bit of money. The whole phone box emptied on the floor. Until it was embarrassing. I was frightened people would think I'm robbing it. And, and the phone box emptied. And I don't know how that happened. That was my experience. You know, I went back there every day for a week, but it never, it never happened again. So before I really understood a higher power or a God of my own understanding, um, my higher power thought we're going to give this man some faith and some trust and a whole lot of hope. And that's exactly what I got very early on. And, and from then on, I suppose my whole life has been centered in and around uh, NA. And the bit I want to share, because I forgot to look when I started sharing, which is a shame. Can we do the 20 minutes from now? I'm feeling a bit better. But this is kind of for the hope for the, for the newcomers. Is um, I really enjoyed this kind of strange fellowship. This, I couldn't find out who was in charge. I couldn't find out. And we, we've not had much contact with uh, the US fellowship. And there was a, a, a meeting announced at the end of the meeting that there's an ad, we want to form a bid committee meeting for the Washington World Convention in 1985 to make a bid to hold the 1986 World Convention in London. And I said, I'll do it. So we all went to this meeting and I was a couple of months clean. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I think the, the kind of moral of the tale is Alex can do anything. You know, there's nothing. I think the only thing we can't do is destroy this fellowship. As, as many of us have tried to do it our own way. And anyway, they, we had this big committee meeting and the people with the big clean time had about a year, maybe 15 months, 16 months and, and Washington and I, I hadn't left the country for years, you know, I couldn't leave town for years. I, and, and they did minutes and in the minutes it said, Martin said, let's go for it. And I, for me to see those minutes with my name on it and kind of, Martin said, let's go for it. And we went for it. And they said, who wants to find a venue? We need a convention centre. So I'll do it. So at two months clean, I'm going to meetings, I'm running around, I'm mixing with people, I'm feeling fantastic, I'm feeling everything I'd always dreamt I could feel. Maybe beyond what I could dream, I couldn't dream you could feel like that. And I, um, you know, where do you start looking as an addict? You know, you've got to hire a convention centre, you've got to get a bid together. So we only got a couple of big venues in, in London and it was Wembley and... Um, I phoned him up and I spoke to someone. I said, look, I'm just doing the footwork. 
I'm from an organisation, we need to hire your building. So they said, well, come down and see us. And, and I stood on this stage. They, they, I, I was a fantastic con artist anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm still pretty good like that. You wouldn't have known I was two months clean. Well, they wouldn't have known. You would have known. They wouldn't have known. Yeah. And uh, they, they met me like royalty, and I had the, 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 the guy in charge, and his deputy, and this one and that one, and uh, I kind of dressed it all up a bit, you know, there's a lot of people coming in from the States. And anyway, I stood on this stage, and it was like this, and I was two months clean, and there was this empty auditorium, kind of probably a bit smaller than this, but round, and but with a balcony, and, a, and I stood at the podium like this. And I closed my eyes, and I knew that we would win the bid, and I knew that in a year, a year later, I'd be standing on that stage, over a year clean. I kind of knew that in a minute with the World Convention, and that's kind of what happened. So, you know, don't let your clean time stop you. Because my, my recovery has been about passion. It's what it's really been about. It's about coming back to life. It's about passion. And it's about believing that anything is possible. Because the impossible's already happened by the fact that I'm not using. Daniel. Anyway, we got that bid and... Um, um, we had the World Convention and then we decided to get lots of people in from the States trying to take over. That was my idea. Uh, yeah, yeah. But they had a big fight on with me there, I'm telling you. Because this was my fellowship, I was very protective. Very suspicious. But what I saw was a whole bunch of people came, some that are here today, some who are not. Um, and I saw the way and they had some time and they treated uh, me especially and I'm sure everybody else with a lot of love and respect that's what really helped me to realise what an enormous thing we've got here the, the, the experience that was won in the US the fellowship was quite mature even though the basic text I think was only released about three years earlier but they came and they understood my fears and my kind of difficulties and there was the stuff around the money. What do you mean you want some of the money? That was kind of a problem. So, but I started to understand. People were really patient with me. They were really patient with me. And, uh, I mean, since then, I, I've been... I, I was thinking about the journey, it's so impossible to talk about 20 years in, in 20 minutes. But there was a lot of things I learned early on and after a couple of years clean and getting sponsored, which was a miracle because I started interviewing women to sponsor me, really. Uh, because they said you'd find somebody who's got what you want and... and uh, But the truth is, I was more comfortable around women. You know, I'm a, I was a womanizer. 
uh, a baby still am. Although I'm beautifully, happily married to a wonderful woman at the moment. Hayley is back in the UK and she's, uh, she's due to share at St. Patrick's Church an hour after I finish here in the UK, so 11 hours ahead. Um, and she's taught me so much about respecting women. My attitude was bad. My attitude was bad about everything. Um, but maybe I'll get a minute to talk about that later. But I was just going to talk about the experience I had in Europe when uh, my sponsor, who was uh, this kind of mad Frenchman, living in London. Um, and people loved me enough to say, listen, I couldn't find a sponsor. I was talking to this woman, that woman, this woman. They said, listen, the guy you need is sharing on step 10 tonight. Get there. And they sort of made sure I got there. And I, I heard this guy share, and um, I loved him. I just wanted what he... I understood. And anyway, a little while later, he said to me, you know, I'll sponsor you if you're willing to go to any lengths. Which is what I tell all my sponsors. If you're willing to go any lengths, that's fine. If not, then I can't. And he wanted to go look about a year later in Paris for his sister using in Paris. There was one NA meeting in Paris. City, I don't know how big Paris is, a couple of million people. He said, we've got to go find my sister. And they're also opening a step meeting, the first step meeting in Paris. We never found a sister, but what I discovered on that trip was this step meeting was held in French. I don't speak French. The whole meeting was in French, and then they had a group conscience to see if they could allow me to, to share in English. I think what staggered me was I came out of that meeting feeling exactly the same as a meeting where I understood every word. There was something beyond the words. The words, sometimes, the less you say, the more you say. I was very clever with words. I used words for years to rationalize, to justify, to manipulate especially, to exploit, to try and fix that hole in the soul. When I came out of that meeting in, in Paris, I thought there's something, I, I couldn't understand it. It was, it was the love. I knew it must have been the love. The, the fact that French addicts, because the Fr French women were in my fourth step, I just realized, I don't know where that came from. French, French women were in my fourth step because I'd never slept with a French woman. That was under groups, when I was doing groups. because. And the fact is, I never even knew a French woman, so... But it went to show how I don't need much to resent anybody or a group of people. <laughs> you know, straight away, French women, 20 million people, gone. That's it. Resent the lot. My whole, for my whole, my whole inventory, with the, when I looked at the inventory, the reason I felt so lonely and isolated was I resented everybody I'd met in my life 
And I resented everybody I hadn't met in my life. That's why I was so lonely. I mean, just, just using European, I was just thinking, because Daniel's German, you'll remember. When did the Berlin Wall come down? 1989. I remember coming home from work. From work. This is uh, just a little illustration of my self-centeredness. <coughs> 1989, I'm four years clean. Get in, put the news on. There's all these mad scenes in Germany, Berlin, wars coming down, 40 million people being freed from um, an oppressive regime. What's my first thought? I don't need this right now. My life was going really well. Things were stable. That's, and then, I mean, what a beautiful gift. I've been given so many illustrations of those ridiculous proportions that have really, really slowly helped me for the penny to drop. I, um, okay. I mean, Anna has really been so patient and loving with me that I thought many times of doing a rehearsal before I come here, and I did do some, and it was very painful. You know, do I go through the steps and give you the definitive lecture on every single step, and do I... Uh, I don't know why... Because I'm trying to, I suppose, be quite light-hearted about things. But I've been through some, some real difficult stuff in recovery. Um, my, my little brother died of cancer. He wasn't an addict. And we were very close. And he was the only family I had left about ten years ago. And, and it, I was completely overwhelmed with pain. I stayed with him for the three weeks he was dying and saw him every day and, and, and I've got to say could see the beauty in the dying process but even as he was dying the self-centeredness again I, I was kind of standing there saying Andy you know I wish I wish it was me I want to kill myself I really can't and he said hang on Martin it's a bummer for me I'm dying I'm going to be and I, I love him so much and it was really sad and, and he was such a courageous, lovely guy because I can't really make sense out of why I've been spared. The only thing that makes sense to me or that gives me some semblance of making some sense of my life is to give back. Is My character defects have worked both ways. I'll just kind of finish on this because I'd like to say uh, I've also had the joy. I mean, the thing after my brother's death was I had a problem in meetings because my pain and my grief felt too private. But my prison commitment to the meeting I ran every Tuesday night got me through it. For some reason, I couldn't let the boys down 
I couldn't not go to that prison meeting. Even though it was easier to not go to fellowship meetings, that prison meeting got me through. So that kind of service commitment really worked for me. I'm sort of struggling a little bit because I've got so much I want to say and I know I've got about five minutes. If that. My character defects have, have kind of worked both ways. Um, they've destroyed me, not made me use, but through one of them, my pride, the stuff that was really affected me before I came on, that fear of being rejected, the fear of being judged, and the ultimate fear I had as being a kid, the fear of humiliation. Especially for 6,000 people. Bad enough in front of one person. But I met a woman, a woman came into my life. I had a sponsor who was obsessed with this woman. I was sponsoring him. And I said, forget it. She ain't going to make it. She's not got the commitment. She hasn't got what it takes. Four years later, I married her. And that's when I stopped working out who's going to make it and who's not going to make it. Just to let you know about how my pride works, I've shared this with my wife, so she won't mind. She's, a, she's an angel. She's a real angel. I didn't want to get married. Because I said, when I got clean, after a couple of weeks, the only thing I'm not going to do, I'm going to stay in this fellowship, the only thing I'm not going to do is get married again. But my pride, this is how kind of distorted my thinking is, the pride and the vanity. I got to a stage about four years clean. I was living alone, very boundary. Nobody can ring Martin after 8.30. Nobody can ring his doorbell. Very controlled environment. And I thought, what happens if I have a heart attack and die in the night? And my pride projected this decomposed body with my private parts probably displayed I don't know why probably but maybe sounds a bit premeditated otherwise doesn't it uh, and it was that point I thought I really got a that was what inspired me I wanted to ask her but I kind of thought I need to live with someone and 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 that was the reason that I kind of made the commitment. Was my vani the vanity and the pride of not wanting to die alone and be discovered by some police breaking the door down. That really inspired me. But really this woman inspired me tremendously. And, and I asked her to marry me and, and it was the most beautiful thing. We flew to Barbados and I went with my sponsor and two of my sponsees and we did our own service on the beach at sunset. And over the years, she's taught me so much about respecting women, about valuing women. And she takes no nonsense from me. 
She gets plenty, but she takes none. She's been fantastically supportive while I've been here. Uh, you know, it's a long way from home. Um, and I, I don't know why I feel... I've got this problem. I very rarely can say how much I love her when I'm with her. I can never really say how grateful I am to her when I'm near her. I'm normally finding fault. I'm normally finding the one thing that's not right. Uh, so I kind of can sort of uh, address that now. I think to wind up with, I'm very grateful. I forgot to thank the committee and um, go through the... Um, the list of uh, gratitude to various people but it's been a real privilege to be able to share something of my life with you uh, it feels not enough but it's um, a hope a message of hope and at the end of my days I kind of feel that if I've helped as many people as I've hurt in my life I'll be very grateful for that God bless you thank you very much Take your seat and quiet down because we have another speaker. Um, it's 20 million, not 40, got out of the cage in 89. <laughs> um, our next speaker is uh, Randy from Texas. And I like. I'm an addict. My name's Randy. I can't tell you how grateful I am to be here. Uh, this is such an honor, and I'm so grateful to the committee for asking me to come here to Hawaii, to this beautiful state. Um, the surroundings are just gorgeous, and I, I just eat it up. I love this. Um, I, I dreamed uh, as a child of coming to Hawaii and I thought well I'll never get to make it there and this is my second time here and uh, dreams can come true when you stay clean I've been clean since June 10th in 1987 I'm very grateful for that as well and I love this theme of one fellowship many friends because uh, I have so many friends out there a friend just brought me this, and uh, I'm just surrounded by friends. I never had friends before. I didn't know what a friend was, and uh, friendship is awesome, and I still get to pick up friends along the way. I make new ones all the time that I want to I nurture that friendship and, and make it more than what it is, and, and that's an honor. That's a privilege as an individual to be able to cultivate that. It takes work. Um, I, I don't take friendship for granted. I was born in Dallas, Texas in 1953, and that makes me 52, and that's amazing, too. I never thought I'd live this long. I got married um, 
for the first time when I was 18 to get out of the house. Not because it was a bad place, but because I didn't know any other way. Uh, I came from a very loving Jewish family. My parents uh, never divorced. They were married 65 years. And they were great role models. They just, they spoiled me. I have two older brothers. And we were just a very loving family and still are. Some of us, the ones that are still around. I got married and uh, my life turned to people. I was surrounded by people who were smugglers and dealers. And I had already used years before. You know, I'd never felt like I fit in anywhere. I never felt good enough. Never felt smart enough. I hated school. Uh, I thought if you, you know, found out how scared I was and that I didn't know what you knew, that you wouldn't like me. And um, that's how I went through life. So when I got married and you know, I'd been doing drugs already to escape, I thought it was a very social thing. But when I look back at the magnitude of what I was doing and, and how it progressed, uh, I had the addiction from the get-go. I also thought I'd found the life to suit my style, though. You know, I liked that escape. I liked not having to to suit up and show up and step up to the plate and be an achiever. I liked being laid back and, and getting high. I enjoyed that. I had no direction. Um, I got divorced four and a half years later. Things got really insane. And... I went back to Mommy and Daddy's. Uh, They were always there for me. I was in several businesses with my dad, from furniture to gambling, um, run the gamut of everything. They were always there for me. And I like that, and I don't like that. It didn't allow me to become an adult um, soon enough, I guess. But, you know, things happen in God's time. My addiction progressed, and, you know, I, I was searching all the time for where I fit in and many failed relationships because I didn't know how to do those very well and I'd stay in them a lot longer than I needed to because I never knew how to get out of one either. I ended up moving to New York and uh, my addiction just really took off there. I had like this newfound freedom of not being in my hometown and uh, I was off and running and naturally the guy I was living with up there was a drug dealer and um, I just fit right in. I ended up moving back. Things got really insane, and then I went back for more insanity and more degradation. I crossed every line in my disease that I said I wouldn't cross, Um, those imaginary lines that we have that I'm never going to do this, and it's not that bad, and and it was. I ended up coming back to Dallas, and my brother had come to NA, and um, I'm sure he suggested it at the time. He had been in a short while, and he was you know, really head over heels about this fellowship, and and he was, you know, really sick. I guess I thought, you know, I didn't have what he had, and my ears were not open at the time. And about two and a half years later, I was ready. A friend of mine, uh, her brother had gone to treatment, and uh, and it, I don't know, I just got clean. You know, it, it inspired me that I wanted to do what he was doing, not necessarily what my brother was doing, but I called my brother and said, would you take me to a meeting? And... Uh, that was awesome that I had him to turn to and still do to this day. Um, family's really important to me. You know, I, I had OD'd. I almost died so many times. Um, 
but I kept wanting to, to keep using to fill that hole. I didn't know how to live another way. But when I came in these rooms, I found another way. I found the tools. Y'all gave me the tools necessary. I heard you had to get a sponsor, or it was suggested that you get a sponsor and you work these steps. And the steps scared me. I looked up there and I saw that G word, and uh, I just didn't know how that was going to fit in my life because I didn't think that God had been with me. And I didn't know how I'd find him. And, you know, this fellowship gave me the tools to find a higher power that loves me so much that's up here with me today. And um, it's weird. I really haven't been nervous. I was nervous last week, and I haven't been nervous. And everybody keeps asking me, are you nervous? Are you nervous? And I'm really not. Um, It's an honor to be able to share my experience, strength, and hope that, you know, no matter what you've done, that one day you can feel comfortable in your own skin because I never had my whole life. And through working the steps and taking these suggestions from a sponsor, it just happened. You know, it's a miracle the way the steps work. I got into service really early. Uh, I was a service junkie. I loved it. I wanted to go to everything. I loved to go to conventions. I'd go anywhere I could go with a group of people to go to conventions. And then um, I got married again. And about nine months later, I had a child. I was 39 when I had my child. And I thought that I needed to quit all my service to be, you know, this super mom. And I did not know how to be a mom. I called women in a fellowship going, what do I do? How do I do this? You know, I reached out. And, uh, you know, one day at a time, I'm still working on on being the best mom that I can be. Um, My husband was in the program. And life went on. I pulled back out of service. And uh, my life got kind of scary. You know, I quit going to as many meetings, quit doing the service, and I was real unbalanced. So I got, I got into H&I, and I was taking a meeting to the, uh, out to the county jail where I live, and I loved doing it. I loved doing it. And uh, then one day someone said, well, there's a women's prison about a little more than two and a half hours away, and uh, they don't have any meetings. And I said, well, you know, I'd like to help them get some meetings. So I called, made all these phone calls, and I've been taking meetings, uh, coordinating the meetings to the women's prison in Gatesville, Texas, for the last eight years. And um, it's the most awesome thing that I do. I mean, I've got a group of friends, a group of women that go with me on the first Saturday of every month. Sometimes there's 15 of us. Uh, that caravan down there and we come from from throughout our region sometimes and we shop and we fellowship with each other and I've made friends there that I would have not met these women in our fellowship any other way but through service and that's how I've made a lot of friends is through giving back this fellowship and stuff happens on the side that you know I didn't set out to do you know God's in charge and and he has this plan and while I'm off doing one thing you know all these other things are being worked out and like I said, that's been the most awesome thing uh, in my recovery, and I, I still do it today. And we, we're picking up new women all the time to go, and it, it's a great attraction, and we have a great time. On March 6, 1999, we were down there like we always were on the first Saturday of the month, and uh, in the first meeting, I got a really bad headache. 
and uh, felt really weird. And I was sharing, even. Uh, we just opened the meeting, and I, I quit sharing, and I scooted back, and I called someone out, and I said, I don't feel good. Something's really wrong. And uh, she said, well, you probably, it sounds like you have a migraine from what you're describing. And um, the cooks are coming out of the kitchen and offering me aspirin. I said, I don't think that's going to help. And they decided that, you know, I needed to be driven back home. So we drove 90 miles an hour all the way home. I was in the fetal position in the back seat, just hyperventilating. And uh had my husband call the doctor. You know, I'm going to the hospital. I've got this migraine. And, you know, I, I need a shot or something. And I got there and what seemed like an eternity, but several hours later, after many tests, they figured out I'd had a brain aneurysm. And it had burst and sealed in my head, and I didn't die which is a miracle. Um, and I felt like I was having I felt like it was somebody else's life this was happening to. All of a sudden, you know, they're wheeling me around. Um, they're taking my son places. People are showing up. Family's showing up. And I'm freaking out. And uh, this doctor comes in and says, you know, I'm going to have to shave your head. I'm um, doing surgery on you, 7.30 in the morning, and uh, and he did. I was supposed to be there like a week to ten days, and the following Saturday, I was at home. This fellowship was so awesome. The prayers that went out throughout the world and the flowers that came, I just, I can't ever express enough gratitude for what I felt and the healing that that gave me. And, uh, you know, I went back to work after six weeks. I'm perfectly fine. You know, 5% of people die from even having one, and then only 5% come out okay. And, you know, after that, you find about all these people that it's happened to their relatives, and they died. And, you know, I just feel really blessed that, you know, I'm still here today. And I couldn't wait to get back to the prison and uh, and continue to take meetings. Um, what, what service has done for me is uh, allowed me to be part of the, you know, I've, I've say I go from the H&I to PTA, you know, I get to be involved in my son's life. It taught me the tools that I needed to go out in the world and, and mix with these people that some days I still feel less than. I still feel like, you know, they don't have this disease and I do. I feel like it's a good thing that I have this disease most of the time. I feel, you know, really blessed that you know, I feel like I'm chosen that I got to have recovery and find out what my life was supposed to be like. I think I'm living the life I was meant to live. But unbeknownst to me, when I'd had my aneurysm, um, my husband, who really didn't have a program all these nine years that we'd been married, or ten years, um, he relapsed on my pain medication. He was holding it for me and doling it out so that, you know, I'd be safe. And he didn't have the support. He didn't have the fellowship that I had that was coming to my rescue. And uh, I didn't find out till probably about 10 months later that he had relapsed. And I was devastated. And I didn't know what to do. You know, I'd always thought, well, if, you know, if my spouse uses, they're out of here. You know, and, and that's not the case with me. Um, there came a day when it almost came to that. Uh, we were at the judge getting a divorce. And uh, several months later, and because uh, it had gotten bizarre, you know, it was... Uh, 911, 
for either the way he was acting, the way he was treating me in the house, and to our son, it was uh, pretty scary, or that he was ODing on the floor. And uh, jails, institutions, and near death it was for him, and it was in our house, and it was not a pretty sight. And, uh, you know, people encouraged me to, you know, I got a lot of advice. Let me just say that. I got a lot of advice, and I had to, I had to just keep in prayer, and I had to... Uh, save my, you know, you cannot save your face and your ass at the same time. I had to save my ass, you know. Um, I was at a lot of meetings. I was crying at a lot of meetings and telling y'all, you know, what was happening to me. I forget how many years clean I had, uh, probably 12 years clean. And that, you know, life happens. You know, life on life's terms is not always pretty. You know, I'd sailed through my recovery uh, for a lot of years without any big incidents till this happened. And, and the last Seven years have been uh, not a merry-go-round, but a roller coaster ride. And uh, I'm glad to say that, you know, my husband is clean today, and we are still together. And uh, it's brought us closer. I know that this is a choice I've made because it's not easy. It's not easy to stay. Uh, it's much easier to leave and run, you know, and that's what I used to do in my life. I used to, you know, when when things heated up, I wanted to run. I didn't want to deal with it. I, I wanted to back in a corner and hide. And today, I want to face everything and recover. You know, I want to I want to face this life, uh, no matter what it brings. You know, we had to go bankrupt due to the what it cost us financially for the all the stuff that happened, the wrecked cars and the hospitals and the lawyers and, and all the stuff that's happened. It's just, it's been insanity. Um, but you know what? There's there's a gift to find in everything that happens. It may, you know, it's a badly wrapped gift. And I've had many badly wrapped gifts in my recovery. Um, and, and I call that one of them. The other one is that... Um, you know, as, as we get older, our parents get older, and uh, both my parents had Alzheimer's, and uh, my mom was worse than my dad, and, and they didn't want to go live anywhere else. They wanted to be in their home, and my brothers and I, uh, we did what we could to, to get them help in their home and, and to cover everything and make sure they're fed and all that, and it came a day that, you know, we just couldn't let them live like that anymore because their life was deteriorating, and we kind of tricked my mom into getting her into the nursing home, and my dad was really upset over it, but, you know, we knew that we were doing the right thing to, you know, put her where she was cared for and bathed and fed and, and taking her medication because she wasn't taking it. She was leaving the house, and we'd find her. We'd get have to call the police to help us find her, and um, it's not easy to see your parents get like that. Um, and I was the one that had to take her that day to the nursing home. My husband and I had to take her. My brothers were out of town. And uh wasn't an easy thing, you know. Um, I left there bawling like a baby, and I called my sponsor, because she'd been through it. I knew she'd been through it with her parents. And, you know, and I got what I needed from that. You know, there's always someone I can turn to in this fellowship that's been through what I've been through. And now I know that what I go through, I've got to give it back. I've got to share um, you know, another friend, her dad died recently, and I called and said, you know, I'm here for you. You know, I know what it feels like. You know, my dad, we tricked him into going into the same place with my mom, and he hated it. And, uh, you know, I cared for him 
more than anyone in, in the world, you know, other than my son and my husband. The love I had for my parents is just phenomenal. And uh, I would go out to the nursing home every day to be with him and uh, to try to ease his pain and to ease his uh, transition into to living a longer life, you know, and being cared for there. He wasn't there six weeks, and he hated it. He quit eating. Uh, he quit bathing. He kept begging me every time I was there, every day I was there, please take me home with you. You know, I couldn't. I worked. I, I had a family that is my priority. You know, even though he's high up on my list, I did everything to make sure he was cared for. And his body shut down, and uh, and they, they rushed him to the hospital, and... Uh, he was in ICU for about seven days, and and uh, through a series of events, I happened to be off work for a week, and I got to spend that whole week with him, going to the hospital every day and just sitting with him and holding his hand and telling him how much I loved him and what a good father he'd been. And uh, he went back to the nursing home, and the next morning they found him without a pulse. You know, he was just ready to die. And this fellowship, you know, one more time came came there for me. You know, the flowers, the coming to the funeral, uh, walking me through this. It's not easy. You know, it's, it's not a fun thing. You know, the gift was knowing this man and the joy that he brought into the lives around him and seeing the gift and, that he gave people. Um, yeah, he's gone, and I miss him terribly. And he would be so proud that I'm here tonight. He used to always say, are you still going to those meetings? Uh, are, are y'all still growing? There's people still doing that stuff? And, and he used to say, you know, would you give me some stuff? Because I want to go to those meetings with you. But he was a workaholic. He was not. He was one of us in that respect. And, uh, you know, you always want to look back and see where the disease came from and your lineage. And, and it, it comes out. It manifests itself in different ways. And in his, he was a workaholic. Um, What I love to do today is still give to this fellowship and give any way I can in service. Um, I continue to do H&I. I I have no plans on stopping. Um, I'm here with my first sponsor. I'm here with my current sponsor. There's other women that have sponsored me through the years. Uh, By the way, right after I found out my husband had relapsed, uh, a friend of mine called and said, are you sitting down? My sponsor that had 18 years had relapsed too. So, you know, you just don't know what, what cards you're going to be dealt on every day, on any given day. And, you know, I'm so grateful for the tools I've gotten in this fellowship that I don't have to be backed into a corner anymore. That I can look for the gifts and things and, and face everything and recover. That's what I want to do. The life I've been given is so much greater than anything I could have ever dreamed. And to be up here and to be able to share with y'all that, you know, this program works, you know, and no amount of time takes life circumstances away. There's nothing that's going to happen that I'm going that I plan on using over. There's nothing that can happen. You know, I have the most awesome son in the world. I can't be up here and not talk about him for at least a minute or two. Um, since his dad had relapsed, um, I found a program for him to go to, and uh, and that's just been a blessing. It's just 
You know, I know that this disease can twist our kids up inside from what they see, what they can see happen. And, uh, you know, I could see it even though he would say, oh, it's okay, Mom, it's okay. I could see it just twisting them up. And uh, so last, uh, I guess it was about a year and a half ago, uh, I helped start a group in my community um, that the kids there can go to um, that come from families of people like us. And that's another way that I give back. That's not directly to this fellowship, but to my community. And that's important to me. You know, I want to be a respectful citizen today. I, I got to be the best daughter to my dad before he died. You know, I, I had not been nice to them growing up. I had abused that relationship and that love that they gave me. And, you know, I got, a, I got many years to give that back. And that is such a gift, to be able to give that back and give that love back and be there for him. So what I do today is I continue to go to meetings. I continue to do the things that work. I do the things that I learned in the first 30 days, and they still work. I reach out when I'm hurting to the friends I have, the one fellowship, many friends. It's just an awesome, uh, awesome theme, awesome fellowship. It gave me my life back. I can't thank you enough. Uh, such an honor to be here. And I love all of y'all. Thanks.